Well, 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 well. Well, well, well. If it isn't Salt Company. Oh, hey guys, what's up? Uh, yeah, hey guys, welcome to Salt Company again. Uh, if you haven't met me, my name is Seth. Seth Jones. Yeah! No, no. Uh, I'm, I'm on staff here at Salt. I'm usually the worship leader, uh, but today we got to, you know, just be out there with you guys and worship with you, which was awesome. And I get to preach, which is super exciting. Uh, a couple of updates since my, the last time I preached, because I get to preach like one time per semester, so, you know, you guys don't know about my life. Uh, but I am with child. Yeah! My wife right there. I know I look like, I may look like I'm 17 or 18, but I've been married almost four years. Yeah? And having a baby in eight weeks, which is insane. Cannot believe that. Uh, I also, am, I'm a software developer, but I don't work for Kroger anymore. So I, I can't say roll Krogs, which is like my favorite part of every sermon. Uh, I now work for a startup, and what we do is we make tools for data engineering companies to have more visibility into where the data flows are failing. So if you, if you know of anybody that's looking for more observability, you know, into their, where their data flows are failing, let me know. I'm looking at you, Kevin. All right, so, uh, you know, we've been in Cincinnati for like a couple years now. And one of our favorite parts about being in Cincinnati is like exploring food, you know, trying a bunch of stuff. And you can't talk about food with Cincinnati without talking about Skyline, right? Skyline? Well, I mean, I, I heard a, a couple of booze. Maybe some of you guys like Gold Star. But I don't, have we ever like actually officially closed out that debate? Because I don't know if we have. Is it even a debate though? Because almost everybody I know likes Skyline and I don't know anybody that's even had Gold Star. Does anybody feel that way? Except for, actually, I did meet this one guy. I kind of forgot about that guy. Uh, we, I was disc golfing with this guy this one time. And he, like, he kind of looked like he's my age. He really loved Gold Star. This is a completely random story. But uh, he looked like he's maybe mid-20s, early 20s. We're talking for a while, but in, except for he, he talked like this. And he's like an old soul, like molasses rolling out of his mouth. And uh, we're talking for a while, and at one point he's like, man, your generation just doesn't get it. And I was like, dude, I, how old are you? And he's like, how old do you think I am? Or how old do you think I am? And I was like, I don't know, 26. He's like, I'm 42 years old. I was like, oh my gosh, man. That's awesome. Congrats. All right, so back to the debate. Raise your hand. Well, actually, first of all, if you like Gold Star, just give a little, yeah. Okay, and if you like Skyline, can we get a, a, an applause for Skyline? Yeah. Okay, I think it clearly, we clearly got Skyline as the winner there. Okay, so even if you don't like Skyline or Gold Star, just imagine with me for a moment. Imagine with me that you love Skyline more than anything in the world. Like, it's the most amazing food you ever had in your life. All right? You, you with me? If you, like, absolutely can't do that, then just picture another food, like Gomez salsa or something like that. Um, so imagine that that's, like, the best food in your, that you've ever had. If that was true, man, what would you do? You would, a natural response would be to, like, show everybody you know Skyline because this is the most amazing food you've ever had, Right? That's just what we do with things that are amazing. We want other people to experience them, right? Um, imagine that I'm bringing one of my friends to Skyline to try for the first time. Remember, it's the best food in the world. I mean, on the way there, I'm thinking, like, dude, I, bet, I hope that chef, that Coney chef is, like, on point. I hope that the Skyline is good. I hope they didn't, like, leave any ingredients out. Like, I'm starting to get nervous. You know, the, like, I'm hoping it doesn't come out looking like dog shenanigans. You know what I'm saying? What? What? And so... Also, a spoiler alert, we're going to talk about salt a lot. So that's a specific ingredient I'm going to call out real quick. Salt is a really important ingredient, right? Like, it, especially with a salty food. So imagine how weird it would be if I was inviting my friend to come experience Skyline, and I leaned over to the waiter, and I was like, hey, dude, 
make sure you, there's no salt at all in his skyline. Like, the guy would look at me and be like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, it's not going to taste like anything. And, like, that would be really weird because it, it, would, it wouldn't taste anything like what skyline is meant to taste like, right? And it would be terrible. It would be bitter. If you were trying to get somebody to experience what skyline was like, that would be probably the worst way that you could do that, right? So why am I talking about skyline and salt? Well, we're actually going to be challenged today in the scripture uh, with the idea that we often do the same thing with Jesus, right? We, we, we try to share Jesus with people. We say he's amazing. We say, come experience this amazing Jesus. But we forget to add the salt, right? Sometimes the, the Jesus that we share when, when people are interacting with us is bitter because we're misrepresenting who he is. Well, one of the ways that we do this it's like we say, Jesus, man, Jesus has grace beyond measure. That he, he's a, a place of freedom. We, we were saying this. We say, come, come experience this amazing thing. But, but when, when people look at us, they just see arrogant, prideful, hard-hearted, judgmental, and selfish people who fail to give grace even to ourselves. We often do this as Christians, which is just as silly as, as trying to give somebody a scowling with no salt in it, right? So Paul's going to give us this challenge with a few other nuggets of wisdom that kind of revolve around this idea of, you know, what it takes to reach people with the good news of Jesus, which is, which is our goal. So we're going to be in Colossians 4. I had to close out this book where, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. <clears throat> well, where Paul's going to paint that picture, right, of what I just said. And it, he's, where he's first going to point to prayer uh, by, by, like, giving a prayer request. He's going to give a prayer request for him and his ministry partners. And in this prayer request, we're going to see like how we should pray and what we should pray for uh, if we want to win people to Christ. And then we'll then uh, be, be given just like really practical instructions Paul's going to give us on how we should act toward people that aren't Christians. And it's, when we get there, it's going to make a lot of sense. It's very common sense. And after that, like we're going to, we're going to hear Paul kind of name drop some of his ministry partners and, and co-laborers. We're going to focus kind of on those first two points though. But the central idea today is this, guys, if we want to be effective with reaching people with the good news of Jesus, we must pray, preach the gospel, and be salty Christians. And we should be good at that because we're salt company, right? Before we get any farther, though, and I just took you on a roller coaster of emotions, let's pray. God, thank you so much for an opportunity to just hear from your word, to hear from you, God. Uh, you are an amazing, amazing God. God, you are good I pray that, that we today are challenged and encouraged to take your goodness to other people, to take your good news to other people, to share the gospel and have our lives represent you, God, that we would be salty Christians. Um, God, we love you. Amen. So, Colossians 4, that's where we're going to be, right? We're going to start verses 2 through 18, that's what we're going to read. So go ahead and open whatever you got, if it's a phone or a Bible underneath you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start, it's going to be on the screen if you want to follow along too. So, verse 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. 
Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Okay, we got through it. There's a lot of names. So, look at that first section, you know, verses like 2 through 6. That's where we're going to be kind of camped out for the most of the, the sermon. Uh, we're going to start with that prayer, right? Paul's going to give that prayer. In that prayer, we're going to get some insight into how we should pray and what we should pray for if we, like, want to win people to Christ. So we're going to start with the how. Look at verse 2. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So how we should pray? Two things. The first one, steadfastly, right? We should pray often. As the kind of due urgency that the gospel naturally brings in us should result in a frequent and persistent prayer, begging that God would save souls. Okay, the second way is watchful in thankfulness. We've got to watch out for the ways that God has, has answered our prayers. He, he is constantly winning victories, even if we can't see him. And God, like a lot of times, God will answer our prayers in ways that we didn't expect him to. Uh, but that doesn't mean he's not answering them. And so we have to watch out for, for the victories that God has in our lives and people, people's lives around us. That's what Paul's asking us to do. Okay, so that's how we pray. Now we go into what we pray. Look at verses 3 and 4. Kind of moving through this, we got a lot of content. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Okay, so there's three things in this that we should pray for. The first one is pray for the laborers in every direction. Verse 3 says, at the same time, pray also for us. So I don't know if you guys know, but on, on Sundays when we have church here, uh, our service times are at 10.02, and maybe you were wondering what that is for. Well, it's actually because we, of verse, uh, the verse 2 of chapter 10 of Luke, so that's Luke 10.2. It says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So what does that mean? That means that, first of all, the, the harvest is plentiful. That means that there are a multitude of people out there that are ripe to hear the gospel of Jesus, that God has, has prodded at their hearts, that he, he has readied so many people just to hear the gospel of Jesus. And now all that's left is for people like you, leveraging their life for Christ to go in and share the gospel with them. What it means also is that there's way more people that need to share the gospel than there are people that are sharing the gospel. So Paul is saying, pray for the laborers. And Jesus in Luke 10 says the same thing. Pray earnestly of the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Find people that are going to pray for you guys. And find people that you will pray for. Uh, there's, there's actually like thousands of people. This might, well, maybe at least a thousand people in the network right now that every day at 10.02 are praying this prayer. They're praying that, that God would raise up laborers because they just have a burden for the, for the multitudes of people that are ready to hear the gospel. 
but have nobody to share it with them. Okay, so that's pray for the laborers. You have people in your life that you're praying for. You have a list of people that you pray for on a daily basis. Number two, pray for gospel opportunities. Uh, Verse three says that God may open a door to the word. We're going to kind of circle back on this in verse five, but man, if we are wanting to reach people with Jesus, we have to pray that God would open doors and soften hearts. We have to. As we know that ultimately God is the one who softens hearts. God is the one who saves people. He's the one that opens doors. So if, if we want to win people to Christ, we have to be starting with prayer. We have to pray that God will open those doors. The third one is this. Pray that, gospel would be made, pray that the gospel would be made clear. Uh, in verse 3 and 4, it says, To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. If you spent any time like around Salt Company, you know, beforehand, or on, on a Sunday before uh, Mercy Hill, one thing that we almost always pray for is clarity. Um, and that we're, not, we're, not, we're, not speak, we're not praying for clarity, you know, just because, like, Tim has that Louisiana education he always talks about, and we're worried he's not going to be clear. Also, I just want to say that Timmy's a really smart guy, and I think that his education probably was perfectly fine. But no, no, we don't pray for that reason. We pray just because no matter who's speaking, we want the gospel to be so clear because the end goal is that it's understood because that's how people are saved, understanding the gospel, putting their faith in Jesus. And it needs to be clear out of the mouth and into the ears. And again, God is the one who's ultimately making that clarity in people's lives. So we have to start with prayer. There's not a section that we should just breeze over with with this prayer. Prayer is powerful. It's important. I just think about like Paul as he's writing this. Think about how many people he has praying for him. This is a guy that's made so much impact for the gospel, so much impact for the kingdom of God. Wrote a lot of the New Testament. He has probably thousands of people praying for him every single day for opportunities, for clarity. You have to imagine that he would not have made the impact he did without the people behind him praying. Because that's how powerful prayer is and how necessary it is. That's why Paul is urging us in this section to pray. Start with prayer if we want to win people to Christ. So after this section, right, we saw that we saw the pointing to prayer. Uh, Paul is going to give us some practical instruction on how we should act toward people that aren't Christians if we want to win, win them to Christ. And as we go through this, you should kind of begin to realize that ultimately he's just saying live like Jesus, Right? It's, it's actually pretty simple what the ask is. We just need to be more like Christ. We're not reinventing the wheel. And we're just striving to be more like him. So, we're going to see three ways that, to act toward people that aren't Christians if we want to win them to Christ. The first is this, walk in wisdom. Look at verse 5. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. This is pretty broad. Uh, wisdom is, is, in general, a pretty broad term. I, I like the way that John Piper define wisdom in a sermon he spoke on Colossians. I listened to it in preparation for this. He says, wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. It's knowing how to become all things to all men without compromising holiness and truth. It is creativity intact and thoughtfulness. It's having a feel for the moment and having an eye for what people need and want. And I love this. You know, practically wisdom can be shown in a ton of areas of our lives. Here's just a few, like how to handle conflict, navigating hard conversations, navigating broken relationships, dealing with hardship, deciding between multiple good options, understanding how to respect manners and norms that differ from our own with discernment. The discernment piece is really big there. All these situations, there's like this gray area, you know, maybe the rules don't say exactly how these should 
play out, but, but this is where wisdom comes in, knowing how to navigate those situations in a biblical and godly way. So wisdom aims at winning people to Christ. Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. It literally says, he who is wise wins souls. I guess it says, whoever captures souls is wise. Same thing. Same deal. But if we want to win people to Christ, we've got to start with wisdom. And why does living wisely win people over? Well, think about it this way. Have you ever had somebody try to, like, give you some knowledge or teach you a principle, with, and it's, like, really evident that they're not applying the same principle to their own life? Like, isn't it incredibly hard to listen to what they're saying? Like, I had this boss when I was an intern in college that, like, I was maybe late, like, once a month, you know, to, like, our morning meeting or something like that. Or, you know, some of the other interns were late at different times. And he would get so mad. He would be like, this is really unprofessional. And when you become an engineer, this is not going to be acceptable when you come full time. But literally, like, once every other week, he would completely miss the meeting. And we'd all just be kind of sitting there. And he'd walk in and be like, guys, I'm so sorry. So sorry I'm late. And then we just move on with our lives. Nobody got mad at him. Nobody, like, chastised him or anything like that. And this always just fried me because it's like he is clearly not applying the same principles that he's trying to impose on us in his own life. And if you're like me, man, that was, made me really hard to, to listen to him, which ultimately I still listen to him because he's my authority and all that. But he definitely made it harder. And the same principle applies to, to sharing our faith, right? If we're trying to tell people about Jesus and we want them to listen to us, but we are clearly not, like, applying the, the same principles that we're trying to teach them, the, the gospel and, and, and the Bible, in our own lives, it's going to be so hard for people to listen to what we're saying. So, what could wi- winning wisdom look like in our lives? Well, I have a really practical example from mine. Um, when I worked at Kroger, uh, I had a friend uh, who also worked at Kroger. He's still my friend. just don't work with him anymore. Uh, he, him and his wife are Hindu, <clears throat> and him and his wife bought a house. And they had a housewarming party, which was cool. So I was like, sweet. I was kind of picturing, for whatever reason, I was picturing like finger sandwiches and uh, like buffalo chicken dip. I don't know. Did you guys think of that? What do you think, housewarming party? And I'm just like, chill. It's chill Sunday afternoon. I don't know why I thought that. So I just like showed up. I didn't bring anything like a fool. And uh, I, I was wearing like jeans and a, t- and a sweatshirt. And I walk in, and I quickly realize that housewarming parties in India are very different than housewarming parties in America. Because there was like 80 people in his house. <laughs> he had invited all of his family and friends from all over the world, his like second cousins, third cousins, and everybody was wearing a sari, which if you don't know what that is, it's like Indian attire for, you know, like special events. So I felt super underdressed, and I was also the guy which made another guy go be like, hey, can you take off your shoes? And I was like, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. I will definitely take off my shoes. So all that to say, man, I, I was like not w- really wise up to this point, right? Uh, but I, so I sat down and I just kind of like took in what was happening. And I also quickly realized that there was a Hindu ceremony happening like in the living room of this housewarming party. Because that's kind of what those parties are for. Uh, it's like a Hindu thing, I guess. I didn't know that before that. And I just kind of sat there. I took it in. You know, I just observed. Never been to one of those before. And I didn't understand what was happening because it was all in, like, Hindi or whatever native dialect they were speaking. Uh, But I asked some people around me some questions about it, and it was pretty interesting. And afterward, I ate some food with my friend, and, like, he just shook my hand, and he just was super grateful I was there. And I I think he felt really, like, loved and supported by that, which is awesome. Like, it it was a big moment in our relationship. So why am I saying this? Well, in that moment, of course, 
Like, I wanted, I want to, I want to win my friend to Christ. Of course, my heart breaks that he is not living for Christ, right? And of course, I've been praying over and over that God would open opportunities for him. I've been trying to build my relationship with him so that I can spark gospel conversations that maybe he'd have a curiosity, maybe God would open a door in his life. Of course, that's true. And also, like, yes, what was happening in that room, like the Hindu ceremony, I didn't agree with. Because Jesus makes it really clear, right, that, that God is the only true God. And Jesus is the only way there when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? Jesus said that. So I, I disagreed with what was happening. But what, what would have been unwise and wrong for me to do, I did not do this, but what, have, what would have been unwise for me to do is to say, this is wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Everything in here is wrong. You guys have the wrong God. Like that would have been terrible. And some of you are probably cringing right now just thinking about me doing that. I'm cringing. I got some goosebumps. That would be terrible. What would that have done? That, that would have destroyed my relationship with my friend. It would have ruined his housewarming party. But what, what's worse than all that is that it would have painted a picture of Jesus that was inaccurate to, to the 80 people in that room. The 80 people in that room would have walked away thinking, wow, Christianity, dude, that, that's, that, that breeds disrespect. It breeds anger. And that Jesus guy that, this, that Seth follows, man, he must be just harsh, judgmental, angry, disrespectful, which is, of course, not true. You see how, see how the way that we navigate our lives, it can, it can discredit Christianity. So what Paul is saying, he's saying walk in wisdom. Live above reproach. Don't give people an excuse to, to look at your life and say, man, I, I don't want anything to do with Christianity if, if that's what that is, if that's what a Christian does. The ask is incredibly simple, but incredibly difficult again. It's, it's just live like Jesus, guys. Walk in wisdom. Here's the next way Paul tells us to act. Number two, buy up every opportunity. Verse five says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So John Piper, in that same sermon that I referenced earlier, that, that part where it says, making the best use of the time, he, he said that actually translates more directly to buy up every opportunity. So what does that mean? It means God is constantly moving. He's constantly prodding people's hearts. Remember that the harvest is plentiful. There's so many people out there that God has ripe to hear the gospel, to hear the good news of Christ. And in different situations, God can soften people's hearts for a moment. You've got to watch for this movement. This ties back to the prayer that, that Paul is pointing to when he said, pray that God would open a door. Be watchful. So the opportunity part in that by the opportunity, that, that, that makes sense, right? Maybe it's a, a random spiritual conversation you had with somebody that you weren't expecting, right? Maybe, maybe you were just meeting with a coworker for lunch and they brought up church. Maybe you, you heard a question after C group from somebody that you didn't expect. These moments could very well be God orchestrating this moment for you where, where they, he has softened somebody's heart, ripe, they are ripe to hear the good news of Jesus. We cannot miss them. These moments often do come our way, but we're also not meant to just wait for them, right? So Paul, for an example, an opportunity that he was buying up on the daily was just like, whoa, there's a group of people over there. They don't know the gospel. I'm going to go to them and share the gospel with them. That's, like, that could be an opportunity as well. And he was buying up that opportunity every single day. So we, we shouldn't just wait for them, but undoubtedly they will come because that's how God works. But we should also go and be bold in that. So we also should take note of the word buy, right? The word buy and, and buy up every opportunity, it implies a cost. 
So there's almost always going to be a cost, a cost associated with sharing the gospel. And that could be uncomfortableness, ridicule, awkwardness, tension, worry, worry about relationships being broken. And sharing the gospel, yeah, like I said, often has a cost. But man, when you have the eternal perspective of what the gospel means, there's no price too high. I think about Derek Jones, who's the SALT director in Bloomington, so over in Indiana. And some of you guys may know him. Uh, he was at the, like, the fall retreats that we've had since we combined with them. Great guy, solid dude, impacted a lot of people for the kingdom. But he was saved when he was a sophomore at Iowa State. Uh, he, at the time, he had a, a roommate that was also a Christian. His name was Trey. And, you know, Trey would often invite Derek to Saul, to church, you know, and Derek was just, like, never that interested in that, um, and, like, just never really went or anything like that, never really grasped his heart, but then a, a series of things happened in Derek's life that just, like, all the things that he valued, all the things he found his identity in were just kind of stripped away from him, like, he, he was a college athlete, he, he had a career-ending injury, his girlfriend broke up with him, and he's at this point where he just felt completely without value, and after that, he just, like, went to Trey and, and just kind of poured his heart out to Derek, or to, to Trey. And, and Trey just listened to him. He was just a good listener. And then he shared the gospel with him. And it was, it was that simple. Jesus died for his sins. He, Trey told Derek that he was already valued by the creator of the universe, because of, not because of what he's done, but because of what Jesus had done for him. And, and Derek put his faith in Jesus. And has now impacted so many people for the kingdom. Probably like a thousand. Like seriously. Definitely me and maybe some of you. But what always gets me about this story is that every time that Derek shares a story, he always says, man, I wish that Trey would have shared it with me sooner. Man, that gets me. As soon as Derek realized how important the gospel was to his eternity, he was like, Trey! How could you not have told me about this sooner, man? And that should challenge us with the idea that there's no price too high. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable it is. Whatever the price, we're talking about people's eternities here. It is absolutely worth it. We cannot pass up opportunities like this when they come up. We have to share the gospel with people, man. It could be the most important moment of their life. Okay, here's the last one. So we were instructed to walk in wisdom, to buy up every opportunity, and finally... The last one is be salty. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each question. This goes back to the skyline analogy, right? What does it look like to be salty? When we're sharing Jesus with people, what does it look like to make sure that we're not like missing the salt, right? A couple of things that we can draw from the text on what it looks like to be salty. First point is this. Be gracious in speech. So here's a good question that encapsulates this point. Are people pointed toward or away from the grace of Jesus by what you say, and by your words, and by interacting with you? When I was at Iowa State, every, a couple times a year, there'd be street preachers that would come out uh, at, and, like, camp outside of our, our library, and they would just scream people's faces off for, like, eight hours on each of those days. And it was annoying because I was trying to study and they were screaming, but what was more annoying and was heartbreaking is just what they were saying. And they would just look at people just yelling, you're going to hell because of your sin, and you're going to hell because of your sin, and you're going to hell because of your sin. Like literally, they would just scream at people like that. 
And they had signs that said the same thing. And, and they would say, the only hope that you have is to completely stop sinning. That's the only way that you have hope. Save yourself by completely being sinless. And, man, just like looking at the people's faces, there was sadness, there was mockery, there was laughter. But if it's not obvious, guys, this is not biblical. It's not Jesus. It's not grace. In fact, Jesus hung on a cross. Instead of pointing pointing at sinners and saying, you're going to hell, he pointed at sinners and said, you're going to heaven because of what I did for you if you put your faith in me. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they've done. Man, imagine if the street preacher had that mentality. We as Christians are called to emulate Christ. That's the mentality we should have toward people. And you know, you might be wondering, like, how, how did these street preachers get off? Where did they go wrong? And I, I was kind of wondering the same thing. And there was a time where I went up to one of them and I asked them, like, dude, why do you, what, what makes their sin more deserving of judgment than yours? And the guy looked at me and he's like, well, sir, I don't have any sin. And I, I probably, like, got really mad in that moment and was like, are you kidding me, dude? Or did you not lie yesterday? Did you not have a terrible thought? Did you not have a sexual thought this morning? Are you not tempted? I probably like kind of went off on him a little bit, but I don't, that's not the point. The point is, it, it became really clear really quickly that this guy had lost sight of his daily need for the gospel in his life. Guys, every single day, we are in so much need of God's grace and mercy in our life because we sin every single day. Paul himself in a different book, described himself as the chief of sinners. Late into his life, we have sin in our life still while we're in this world. And we are in need of God's fresh grace and mercy every single day. And he is faithful to give that to us when we put our faith in him. The moral of the story is this. If you want to be gracious in your speech, you better be reminding yourself of the grace in your own life of Jesus every single day. Because when, when we start to think that we don't need the grace anymore, that's when we stop giving the grace to other people. If we want to win people to the grace of Christ, we must be gracious in our speech because that's who Jesus was. Okay, here's the second salty point. People should be tasting the goodness of Jesus when they interact with you. Saltless food is bland. It's not good. For those of you know that know Jesus, though, you know that he is good. And do people observe a hopeful and joyful person when they look at you? Or do they see a prideful and arrogant person who has no hope, no grace? Do you guys realize that the primary way that the world knows God and knows Jesus is through his followers, is through you guys and through me? That's the primary way that that they know who Jesus is, is by looking at his followers, what they say and what they do. We represent Jesus. We are mirrors. We are a reflection of Jesus. We're salt of the earth. That's why we're called Salt Company. And do we make Jesus look good? When people interact with us, do they like Jesus more or less than when before they interacted with us? And it's so sad to see how many people have written off Christianity, have written off Jesus because of bad churches or bad people who make Jesus bitter to them. It's so sad for those of us who know him because we know he's the opposite of bitter. I sometimes find myself reading forums on like Twitter or X or whatever. And are people saying that now? I don't know. 
of people just hating on Christianity from a place of deep hurt. They think that, they think that Jesus is, is a breeding ground for toxicity, for exclusivity, exclusivity. That it doesn't stand up for injustice, that it doesn't protect the innocent. I even found a thesis of a, of a girl that, that wrote a, the, a whole thesis on how Salt Company was a breeding ground for bigotry and hatred. Man, it breaks my heart. Every time I see one of these things, just see, hear these people lashing out from a place of hurt, I always just, I always think of this. And what would it be like if one of these people just was sitting at a table with Jesus himself, just still with the holes in his hands, the blood running down his head from the, the crown of thorns, just with his arms outstretched, saying, I did this for you. Is there any way that that person who views Christianity as a breeding ground for hatred, a breeding ground for exclusivity, for toxicity, is there any way that they couldn't look at Jesus and be completely blown away by how much he loves them? Is there any way that they could think of of Christianity and Jesus as as anything but a greeting ground for ultimate love and servant-heartedness and kindness and joy and sacrifice and selflessness? I don't think so. Guys, this is the point. Many of the world right now thinks that Christianity is hurtful and hateful. For those of us who know Jesus, we know this view cannot be because of who Jesus is. It must be because we are misrepresenting him. How can we show people the good, how good Jesus is in the way we interact and talk to people? How can we be salty? Well, I already alluded to it earlier, but guys, to represent Jesus well, we don't have to fabricate. We don't have to add things to Jesus. We don't have to make him flashy. We just have to represent him for who he is. Just the gospel. Jesus himself. We need to be more like him as well as experience the goodness of Jesus in our own lives. We for sure won't be able to convince people that Jesus is good if we aren't personally living that goodness ourselves. One call out I have on this topic is the gospel in itself. It is an offensive message. It's an offensive message because in order to be saved, we have to first admit that we need saving. In order to be saved, we have to first admit that we need God to intervene in our life. We need the blood of Jesus to cover our sin. And if, if God doesn't intervene, then we are, we're destined for hell. Because that, that's the, that is an offensive message, but it is part of the gospel. But as soon as we realize this, we know that we are free to accept the free gift that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And we are promised an eternity with him in, in heaven forever. But there's going to be people that are offended by it. There are going to be people that reject Jesus and Christianity because of the offensiveness of that message. And this kind of offense can sometimes be unavoidable. But here's what I'll say to that. So I have a friend who said, Seth, I think you're a jerk if you share the gospel with people. He didn't say jerk. What he said rhymed with crash hole. And, like, yeah. And, you know, I get it. Like, how offensive of you, he said, to tell somebody, like, hey, your, your worldview is wrong. And even more, how offensive of you to say that if, if they don't believe what you believe, that they're going to go to hell. Well, here's what I said to him. Imagine you're blindfolded with your friend, and your friend's also blindfolded. And you believe with your whole heart, soul, and mind that there's a cliff 30 feet in front of you. But you also know that your friend believes that there's no cliff. Any person in their right mind 
if you believe there's a cliff in front of you, would spend that whole 30 feet trying to convince your friend to not continue walking where he's walking. Because if he continues walking where he's walking, he's going to fall off the cliff and die. And also, any person in their right mind would say that if you didn't try to convince your friend there's a cliff in front of you, then you actually are the biggest jerk in the world. That's even more of a crash hole move. Seriously. So sometimes people will hold the view that you are a jerk for imposing your beliefs on them. But guys, if heaven and hell are real, if you truly believe that they're real, then you'd be much a larger jerk if you didn't share the gospel with as many people as you could before you died. Just pointing them to Jesus as their Savior. Okay, that's it, guys. That's the instructions. We, we heard to, to start with prayer. If we want to win people to Christ, we start with prayer. We pray for gospel opportunities. We pray for clarity. We pray for the laborers. And we walk in wisdom. We, we buy up every opportunity. And we got to be salty. And we should be good at that because we're salt company. But Paul finishes out the chapter by just kind of name dropping some of his like co-laborers and ministry partners. Um, it's like, it's kind of like he's saying like, hey guys, say hi to Brad for me, man. That dude's been a faithful servant. Like seriously, that's what it'd be like. I'm not going to spend much time on this section. Like I'm not even going to read it. Uh, but what I do want to ask ourselves is this. If Paul were to write a letter to, to Salt Cincinnati, and it was called Salt Cincinnatians, and we just read Salt Cincinnatians 4, you know, like, if he ended that section by calling out some of our names, what would he say? Just imagine your name. You have one line. What would he say? Would he say, hey, check up on Seth for me, because he has always struggled to apply the gospel in his life. Or would he say, dude, give Seth some props. That dude is walking in wisdom. He's salty. And my hope for all of us is that Paul would look at Salt Cincinnati and think, man, those are people that represent Jesus well. When people walk into Salt, when outsiders walk into Salt Company, they're in like, they just think, wow, Jesus is amazing. Because these people have freedom that I've never seen before. They have hope that I've never seen before. And they have grace that I've never seen before. That's my hope for us. So I just want to end with a few questions. First, for the Christian. Guys, your life, my life, our life paints a picture of who Christ is to everybody around us. Does that picture draw people toward Jesus or does it push them away? Is your life marked by grace? Do people like the idea of Jesus after spending time with you? For the person who's not a Christian in the room, Jesus is good. Ask anyone who's tasted his goodness. He went to the cross for you. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And all he's asking of you is to put your faith in him. He's just sitting at a table, his arms outstretched. He went through hell for you. He conquered death for you. And all he's asking is you put your faith in him. There's nothing stopping you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for another opportunity to just be challenged and encouraged in your word. God, you are a good, good God. God, you are so sweet. I pray that we would walk away being people that just magnify your name, people that represent you well. God, I pray that when, when people that aren't Christians interact with us, that they would want to hear more about Jesus. 
that they would be pointed to your grace, to your mercy, to the hope that can be only found in you, God. I pray that for my own life, that you would convict me of any area where I'm not pointing people to you, God. God, you are a good, good God. You are more perfect than we could possibly imagine. There's nothing we could change about you to make you more perfect, God. We love you. Amen.